Hear now a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, beginning with verse 20. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The definitions of legal insanity differ from state to state, but generally a person is considered insane if he or she has a mental defect that makes them incapable of discerning the difference between right and wrong or incapable of restraint, even if they know an act is wrong. For some people, this legal defense works, as was the case when John Hinckley Jr., the man who tried to assassinate President Reagan, was determined to be insane, and instead of being sent to prison, was committed to a mental institution for 35 years. The same is true for Andrea Yates, who was a high school valedictorian, champion swimmer, and college-educated registered nurse that systematically drowned her five children in the bathtub after her husband left for work. In 2002, she was convicted of capital murder, but this conviction was overturned in 2005. A new trial was ordered, and in 2006, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Although the insanity defense gets a lot of publicity, it is a relatively rare legal strategy, one that raises some interesting questions. Can someone be held accountable for doing something bad if they are crazy? <laughs> and what exactly do we mean by crazy? We sometimes label people crazy because they are eccentric. Also, some of the most ingenious people in the world 
look, think, and act in ways that resemble those we call unstable. So what does it mean exactly to call someone crazy? These kinds of questions may come to mind when reading the third chapter of Mark's Gospel. Jesus' popularity is growing, but so is the outrageousness of his claims and behavior. He says things like, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and your sins are forgiven. <laughs> he does strange things like giving his disciples authority to cast out demons, and dangerous things like challenging the authority of the Roman Empire. In all of this, he drew an uncomfortable amount of attention to himself, so much so that two groups, the people who were closest to him, his family, and people most threatened by him, the religious leaders, began asking the same question. Is this guy crazy? <laughs> In verse 21, we see his loved ones staging a failed intervention. It says, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And in verse 22, the religious leaders accuse him of being possessed by the prince of demons. While those of us reading the Bible today have the benefit of faith and perspective to understand that Jesus is not crazy, we must admit that the speculation of these people isn't entirely off the rails. What else could his family, who for 30 years knew him to be a normal Jewish boy, assume? What other conclusion could the religious authorities come to, given his claims and behavior? Sane people don't turn their lives into a spiritual freak show. They don't claim to be divine or go around casting out demons. That's not normal, <laughs> not then and not now. But as I already mentioned, sometimes crazy and genius look alike. And such is the case with Jesus. It's not that he's insane. It's just that his worldview and value system, what he calls his kingdom, are so otherworldly that it surprises us and shakes our spiritual foundations. Humanity had never seen such power on public display. It had never heard such values being taught. It had never witnessed such dynamic, charismatic, and divine authority wrapped in so much weakness. Given the fact that he was a homeless, self-made rabbi from Nazareth, with no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We too probably would have called him mad. Jesus, for his part, does not seem overly bothered by the accusations of insanity. Instead, he takes the response of those concerned and uses it to illustrate a dividing line between saving faith and destructive disbelief. Those who will be forgiven are those who can see that behind his stunning miracles and sermons on the kingdom of God is the power of salvation for those who believe.
a truth worth remembering is that the work of the Spirit will always disrupt and disturb a sane world. If being crazy includes persistently violating social norms with little regard for oneself, then the work of Jesus fits the description. <laughs> Just think about the countercultural nature of his teachings. For example, the world idolizes certainty, but Jesus teaches us to live by faith in the face of divine mystery. The world abuses and exploits the weak, but Jesus calls us to protect and advocate for the most vulnerable among us. The world idolizes the strong, but Jesus calls us to humility, compassion, and self-sacrificial love. The world says, you are entitled to hate those that hurt you, but Jesus calls us to love our enemies. The world is full of people scrambling to stock up as much earthly treasure as they can before they die. But Jesus calls us to give to the poor, to live simply so that others may simply live, and instead of storing up treasures on earth, to store up treasures in heaven. The world's motto is love yourself and try not to hurt your neighbor. But Jesus teaches us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So, if Christians are called crazy from time to time, well, as Jesus might have put it, welcome to my world. <laughs> Here's the deal. If God is real, then by definition, God is above and beyond all cultures, perspectives, or political views. No one tribe has ownership of God. Therefore, in some way, as God breaks into our world through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, God will offend and jar our sensibilities. Indeed, if the God we worship is not in some sense deeply disruptive, then we are probably worshiping a God of our own creating. Nowhere is this illustrated more vividly than in the gospel itself, which deeply offends our sensibilities and disrupts our normal ways of thinking. If you don't believe me, just think about the Incarnation, the idea that God became a human being in Jesus of Nazareth. To help us understand the implications of this idea, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Then in Philippians chapter 2 it says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which points us to another claim in the gospel that offends our normal ways of thinking. The idea that God saves us by dying on a cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, 
For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved by it is the power of God. God in the flesh giving his life as a gift for rebellious and sinful human beings? Again, to the human mind, this is pure foolishness. And the same is true for the way that God offers salvation in Jesus. It seems like every other religious system requires that the one being rescued do something. For example, to demonstrate obedience or acquire certain knowledge. But we read in the New Testament that Christ died for us while we were still sinners and made us alive when we were dead in sin. In other words, we bring nothing to the table. Instead, God by His Spirit saves us by an act of pure love by extending unmerited grace. And if we are honest, this idea of being saved by grace alone runs contrary to all that we celebrate in this world. This is not how people advance in their careers, how championship games are won, or how a heart is wooed. It is, to the human mind, completely ludicrous, and yet it's true. And there is no claim more offensive to human reason than that of the resurrection. How can we ask someone to believe that a man who is dead in a grave for three days was raised by God. On the surface, it really is an outrageous assertion. As disruptive and incredible as these ideas may be, God empowers us to believe them, and not only to believe them, but to trust them. That's what faith is all about. It is a gift that enables us to trust the outrageous claims of the gospel. We simply cannot make sense of these things without faith, without God's help. But when we receive the gift of faith and embrace what God has revealed in Jesus, then we are changed from the inside out. And this is part of the proof of their truth. When we trust them and model our lives around them, they become life-transforming realities. Nevertheless, People without the gift of faith might think that we're insane. <laughs> Consider what non-believers said about the early Christians in the first century. Look at them. They share all of their stuff. They celebrate in their struggles. They claim to eat the body and blood of Christ. They're crazy. I want to conclude this morning by asking, what would happen to us if, rather than worrying about fitting in, we embraced this weirdness? Everyone seems to have that one friend who just doesn't care what others think. Everyone has that neighbor who lets his freak flag fly. <laughs> but what if we embraced our weirdness too? And if all of us embraced our weirdness together, how would that change the church? Would the church be less put off when a homeless woman wanders in on Sunday morning and instead of uh, ridiculing her or looking at her in strange ways, maybe giving her a seat of honor and affirming her dignity? Would the church encourage 
radical generosity among the people. You know, the kind of generosity that makes people talk about you behind your back. Would the church start ministries that do more than entertain the respectable people who are already there and offer healing and hope to the outcasts in society without regard for its own reputation? These are just a few ideas to get you thinking. In our scripture reading this morning, Jesus' family and friends thought that he had lost his mind. And as his followers, we need to be asking ourselves if we are strange enough, weird enough, crazy enough. And if the answer is no, then our next question is, how can we be set free by the insane message of the gospel and start looking more like the crazy Messiah we follow?